Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Michael Sherling, who's the co-founder and chief medical and strategy officer at Modernizing Medicine, which provides specially specific electronic health record technology to thousands of providers. Dr. Sherling is a dermatologist himself, and before starting the company 10 years ago, he was affiliated with Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Before I welcome uh, Dr. Sherling on the show, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to our advisor and investor, Dr. Veronica Diaz, who's an orthopedic surgeon uh, and also works at Modernizing Medicine, and also mention the kind of how circular life is where I first met him and Dan Kane, his co-founder, some years ago at one of these medical technology conferences. As you know, Osmosis is involved in uh, e-learning, and Dan Kane was the co-founder of Blackboard, which is obviously one of the largest e-learning companies ever made. So it's great to reconnect, Dr. Sherling. Thank you so much for inviting me on Raise the Line today. I'm excited to be here. Well, the first question is just learning more about yourself. How did you get interested in medicine and dermatology and then wind up starting a company? Yeah, I'm kind of like a dermatologist trained turned into entrepreneur by circumstance. I uh, had a traditional route to medicine. My father's a pulmonologist who used to take me and my brother when we were about five years old to the hospital with him when he was on call. And he loves what he does and really pushed us to explore a path to helping people. So um, flash forward, I went to Yale Medical School in Connecticut. Uh, While there at medical school, you're allowed to audit classes outside of medicine. So I picked one called How to Start a High-Tech Company. And it was taught by a former venture capitalist who helped fund a company called Pixis, which is what nurses use to dispense uh, opioid medication. And in the course, he commented on how the best startups form from people in the trenches working to solve problems that fill an unmet need. And if you look around medicine, there are so many unmet needs and doctors are really the ideal entrepreneurs for anything in healthcare. Um, So fast forward, I enrolled in business school at the time, matched in dermatology residency, and found myself in private practice in South Florida trying to solve a real-life problem, how to make electronic health records fast, how to save doctors time. And one of my patients at the time was a 33-year-old software entrepreneur who was in between his companies, Dan Kane. He co-founded a company called Blackboard, an e-learning company that he took public on the NASDAQ for $1.6 billion. And Dan saw sitting in my exam room with his robe on. And I'm trying to meet the moment, (laughs) but first I had to get through the skin exam and find a way to transition from his exam to a business conversation and then invite him to lunch. And so that's all kind of going through my brain right then. And finally, I take him to his favorite uh, restaurant, John G's, which is beautiful. It's like on on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean and literally draw out the first design for our electronic record system on a napkin. And I tell them we can build a company together and doctors will switch systems for something that's easier to use and faster to document. And being superstitious, I told them that we couldn't go back to the restaurant until we took our yet to form company public. So it's been 10 years, 800 employees, 16,000 providers, and we still haven't eaten there. And he's kind of annoyed at me for that. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's, uh, I imagine that the night after ringing the bell, uh, if you fly back from New York, you'd go to John G's probably. Yeah, exactly. So I know that's that's definitely on our calendar uh, whenever that happens. That's that's a great story. It's funny. It reminds me of an episode of uh, HBO's Silicon Valley where the, the founder of Pied Piper was getting really a lot of news and his doctor uh, was pitching him his business plan in the waiting room. So it's kind of funny that that actually happened and the napkin was drawn out too. So, you know, I know you all started 
to make a specially specific EHR for dermatology. You've expanded quite a bit since then. So I'd love to hear more about how do you make an EHR that's faster? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when we first started out, I tried to teach Dan dermatology and that really didn't work well. So he instead taught me how to code the medical knowledge. And now we have this team of physicians who learn how to code the medical knowledge in their specialties. And this allows for the physician customers to experience an intelligent, ready out of the box solution that adapts to each physician style of practice without having to spend the nights and the weekends filling out the macros and the templates. So that's one piece of it, having that medical knowledge baked in. But the other is mobile technology and having this native iPad application designed for touch so that you're not typing away. And uh, that really helps speed up the process, the form factor, the design, and then obviously performance, uh, making sure that things are responsive when doctors click on stuff. Definitely. And so, I mean, in general, there's been kind of a hate-hate relationship with EHRs, but when I've talked to users of ModMed, I've been impressed with how positive the experience has been. Can you talk a bit more about why doctors don't like electronic health records, apart from the fact that they take more time, but what are some of the other problems with other healthcare electronic health records? And um, I'm just more curious, like how, how you see EHRs integrating with, say, automated natural language processing or scribes, and how does ModMed do it? Yeah, great question. So most systems are designed to meet a common denominator, in this case being a data repository for 65 different medical specialties. So companies essentially built a word processor for doctors to type their notes into. And typing takes time. It disconnects the doctors from their patients. I've experienced this on the patient end, me being a patient with my own doctor, He's asking me questions, but he's completely stared and typing on his computer, you know, not even connecting. Um, it's not his fault. It's just most systems are designed to be the common denominator for everything. So that's one difference, being specialty specific. And then uh, having the right form factor. So, you know, it takes doctors an additional three to 10 years to become who they are, right? You go through medical school, residency, fellowship. The EMR should take the unique workflows into account. So Maybe you need a visual interface in dermatology because everything's on the skin. Maybe you need a pre-testing workflow that takes into account all the different devices in ophthalmology that need to happen before you even see or speak to a patient. Uh, and colonoscopies are in gastroenterology. That's completely different, right? And there's like hearing tests in, in ENT as well. And so it's these nuances that if they're not built the right way, completely slow you down and becomes very frustrating. Uh, and these types of specialties are high volume. They see 40, 50 patients a day. So you don't want your technology to be the limiting factor. So I think that, that that's part of it. I think most physicians are frustrated because they feel slowed down by the technology instead of the technology helping them. That makes a lot of sense. And, and um, are there any metrics that you have as far as like customer satisfaction? I know one common uh, metric that we also use at Osmosis is net promoter score and how we benchmark relative to other education companies. I'm sure somebody at, at ModMed is monitoring that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we, we do track customer success in a, in a bunch of different levels. We have customer success health scores. So we know if they're writing their notes and they're finishing their notes. Um, we also know the net promoter scores as well. We track that. So we're for an EMR company, we're, we're pretty high. So like in dermatology, our net promoter score is a positive 40, um, which is pretty high um, in terms of people liking what they're using. So we're, we're really proud of that. Uh, but, but we take it to another level as well. Um, we count clicks, every click. And so we have um, this dashboard for the designers, the medical doctors that design the code to look at how many clicks it takes to complete a history on average for the most popular histories or an exam 
or impressions and plans. And we try to figure out, okay, how do we make that fewer clicks? How do we streamline it even more and make it faster? And much like the way technology companies always launch new hardware systems that are new and improved with faster microprocessors, we want to do the same thing. We want to be like, oh, look, it's fewer clicks, it's faster performance, it's easier to visualize. And so as long as we're constantly getting that feedback in, I think we're in a good place. And there's new like data that came out, I think, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, they had a special journal around EHRs in general about how best to assess whether an EMR is working or not. And so they looked at things like time motion studies, which is kind of hard to do. But they also said, well, why don't you take the audit log of an EMR, because that's all EMRs have to have one. And why don't you count the number of things that the audit log's recording and try to get it streamlined in that way. So there's a lot of new tools that we have to, to make things faster. And, and we constantly look at them to, to make the, our customers like EMR better. So can you talk a bit more about the scale you've reached? I know you've expanded quite a bit since dermatology. So how many specialties and how many uh, clinicians or offices are on modernizing medicine, whatever you can share? So we have about 16,000 providers. Nationally, we're in about eight specialties. So dermatology, ophthalmology, orthopedics, plastic surgery, ear, nose, and throat, gastroenterology, urology, as well as pain management. Wow. And I remember also in the earlier days of modernizing medicine, how quickly you started integrating with uh, other tools, clinical distance support tools, building your own. Can you talk about a bit more about your integrations and also what yeah, you all think about um, maybe the incorporating, since you have all this data on patients, how you all are thinking about uh, diagnostic support, especially when it comes to machine learning or artificial intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. So we interface to all, the, all like major labs that Physicians need to order labs or pathology and things of that nature, PAC systems. So if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you want to view your MRI or your, your X-ray, you can. There's something called synapsis, which is basically our coin term for interfacing with anything through a fire API. So literally anything in the, in the patient ecosystem, whether it's on the patient side or, or the clinician side that wants to interface with us, we just have this set of requirements so they can connect. And then it's really up to the, the customer what they want to connect with um, if they need to connect to the to electronic health record. But we're definitely excited about the new changes for interoperability and we're very open to connecting with anybody that wants to connect with us. Um, in yeah. terms of artificial intelligence, we're definitely uh, interested in what we call like intelligence amplification, which is let the technology help the doctor be a better doctor. But, you know, we don't believe that, you know, a technology can replace doctors. Uh, obviously, I'm a physician. I see patients. <laughs> my customers are physicians. Um, so anything that we do would be to facilitate their workflow. And then the other piece of this, as far as integrations go, you know, there is a whole movement around democratizing uh, access to one's health information. So patients getting a better understanding of their own health data and also an understanding of their conditions so they're more engaged. Can you talk a bit more about the patient side of things, whether it's a patient portal and modernizing medicine, as well as any educational resources you provide to patients or clinicians. Absolutely. So we're definitely pro-patient engagement. We, we provide a, a lot of different ways to connect to patients. We have a native iOS and Android app that patients can download. And it's been particularly helpful during the COVID crisis where practices may not be open and they want to connect with their patients remotely. And, and so I think that that's been particularly helpful. We are absolutely looking to increase uh, through open APIs, things like patient data, whatever a, a patient wants to get into their medical record, we're, we're open to partnering with uh, to help the doctors and the patients uh, improve their care. 
So you mentioned COVID, that, that's where I was going to take the conversation next, since it's uh, showing no sign of stopping, and especially not in, in your state, uh, and actually my home state too, of Florida. I'm curious, what impact has COVID had on the adoption of modernizing medicine, especially because so many of the practices and specialties you look at, you know, are considered elective, and, and so probably have had to close or had less patient volume. Has it been an overall positive or overall negative for modernizing medicine and your customers? I think it's definitely been a, a time of change. I think that uh, certainly EMRs are going to continue to evolve to serve both the physical and virtual physician practices. I am a physician. I practice in South Florida. Uh, we're starting to see the beginning of these changes now, and we're currently uh, practicing in the epicenter of the pandemic. And my clinical practice has become a hybrid of a brick and mortar practice and a virtual practice. And on Wednesday mornings, they put on my N95 mask, face shield and gown and treat patients. In the afternoons, they come home, place my iPad on my dining room table and treat patients virtually. And virtual care has provided timely access to care, reduces the transmission of COVID and allows for business operation of medical practices in the epicenter of the pandemic. From a modernizing medicine perspective, uh, you know, there's been an unprecedented amount of change for us too in just a few short months. Things that we had on our roadmap that we thought were important, like a waiting room kiosk, um, improving that are completely not anymore. And so you just kind of have to pivot and roll with it. So, you know, in, in March and April, many of our customers in the Northeast began to lock down. So as a business, we needed to create a telemedicine solution so that doctors could see their patients. And our development team built the initial version in, in 10 days. And with reopening in May and June, waiting rooms were perceived to be unsafe. So we had to build a patient journey experience that allowed for patients to check in and check out in a contactless environment. And so we're rolling out mobile patient portals, COVID screening questions, text-to-based solutions, reminders, self-scheduling, and more. And we're also doing webinars for our customers as well, because there's no playbook for this. There's no blueprint for this. So we want to bring the resources to them, whether it be questions around how to build a telemedicine practice or how to apply for a small business loan or when the vaccines are going to come out. So we had one two days ago with uh, the, the director general of the International Vaccine Institute in South Korea who ran, you know, vaccine development for the world in the cholera vaccine and typhoid vaccine and others and just educated the users on that. And so it's, it's really whatever they need to feel like they know what's going on, they're informed and, and have a playbook against something that's a little unpredictable. Yeah, we can relate a lot to that because a lot of our uh, customers are obviously clinicians, students and health systems in schools like University of Miami and your neck of the woods. And uh, we've been doing a lot of education around switching to remote work, remote education and teaching, as well as our chief medical officer. Uh, so your equivalent role is a gentleman named Dr. Rishi Desai. He was a CDC epidemiology intelligence officer, and he's done countless ask me anything's about you know vaccine timing and has done interviews with the former CDC director, among others. So definitely something we can talk about a bit, bit further. Oh, that sounds, that's exciting. And I'm glad that, that you're also spreading the word. It, it, you're doing a, a, a public good by you know, getting messages out around the science and, and, and epidemiology uh, that really need to get out there more. So Likewise, and helping your clinicians stay active and with through telemedicine. The, the story of your releasing your first prototype of the telehealth software in 10 days reminds me of this quote I've shared widely with the team uh, at Osmosis, which is from Lennon, said, uh, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. 
uh, where <laughs> it just shows how quickly you can move if if there's a catalyst for that change. So for us, we we launched a COVID course on continuing medical education that's been taken, I think, over 60,000 times now um, that was on our roadmap. CME was on our roadmap for like six months from now, but we did it in you know two weeks. Amazing. Uh, speaking of like changes that COVID has brought, given that you're a physician and, and an entrepreneur, what are some of the lasting effects you think COVID's going to have on our healthcare system? I think that COVID's really been this catalyst for change, like you just said with your quote, where I think telemedicine would have been something that might have evolved over time, over many, many years, all of a sudden everybody's doing it. And the virtual care is really two different things. It's the care of the doctor treating the patient over you know, a smartphone device. But then what we may see is an extension of that. So as we know, schools may not open up next fall because the, the case counts are just too high and the risk is too much. And so I think for a lot of workers in medical practices, it may be difficult for them to take care of their kids at home and go to work. They may not have a way to take to, to care of their children. So they have to make this choice of, do I go in to work and basically take my salary and pay somebody else during a pandemic to take care of my children? Or do I not go to work? And that's a terrible decision. Uh, but that's one that a lot of people in medical practices, particularly in the front office, may have to make. And so things that we're thinking about is like, how do we virtualize not just the patient doctor experience, but the practice experience as well? And could some of these roles function work remotely? And can we get the front desk to schedule patients from that person's home? Could we get the biller or the coder you know, working from their home? Can we get a medical assistant to be a virtual scribe if they're sick? You know, if someone calls in sick and can't come in or they have a fever, you know, can we do a telemedicine experience from medical assistant to doctor or doctor to medical assistant? So these are the types of things we're thinking about that I think will have long lasting change, uh, even if we get vaccines soon, which hopefully we will. Yeah, no, totally. And actually, you mentioning all this telehealth um, has made me think of another recent guest we had on Raise the Line the CEO of Futuro Health, Von Ton Quinlevan, who who's, gave me the example of how do you train clinicians or, or uh, retrain them to be able to get a full patient story over, over Zoom, right? We're a two-dimensional box. And you were saying that, you know, on Wednesdays, you go into the clinic and you see patients in person, then in the afternoon, you see them via telemedicine. Um, the specific kind of story she shared was like, you know, when you're in a, in a room with a patient and they're leaving, uh, you're leaving the room as a doctor, you grab on the door, the patient may say, oh, doctor, one more thing. And maybe show you another concerning aspect of their skin. How do you get that same kind of approach on telemedicine? How do you get the bedside manner via telemedicine? Can you talk a bit more about what you've learned in that process? Yeah, uh, we, we did a piece on this um, in one of the dermatology journals called website manner, where you're basically talking to their patients through the phone and, and just getting them really comfortable with how to use a smartphone. And we're all familiar with FaceTime. You know, we all expect like, you know, just to look at the face, but when you're doing an exam on somebody, it's completely different. And we actually need the back facing camera of the phone because it's much higher resolution. We want the flash on so we can see where we're looking. And so for the patient, you know, they're, they're kind of holding the phone opposite like this and so they're kind of like scanning themselves and moving left to right and you just kind of need to talk them through it and it's just like this friendly fun conversation and for many of them that have comorbidities like diabetes or asthma 
they're psyched because they don't have to go into a you know a waiting room or a clinical clinical office. So they're actually more patient, and we're more patient because we have this wonderful technological experience that's allowing us to see the complaint, make a diagnosis, prescribe what we need, order a lab. All that can happen. It's a very comfortable uh, experience, and, and it's not awkward at all. So I, I, I foresee that continuing. That's great. That's excellent to hear. And it contrasts a bit with what we're hearing from K-12 online education, where the experience has not yeah. been so fantastic. Uh, I don't know how old your <laughs> children are, but can you relate at all to that? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, but that managing a classroom of, of 30, you know, 10-year-olds is much different than a one-on-one -on -one conversation with between a doctor and a patient. It helps if you already have rapport with a patient. So you already kind of know them. They already trust you. And, you know, we just need to make sure that the Wi-Fi connection is good for them, that they've downloaded the app, um, that they know which way to point the phone. But that, that, we get through it and then they figure it out. And, and it, it actually works quite nice. Does your medical assistant also have some IT experience now as, a, as an IT support specialist? Or So I have two medical assistants. They both work at Modernizing Medicine in addition to working with me now for the past like eight or nine years. And so they, they, they build the product. And they, they teach physicians how to use the product as well. And, and so it's a unique position to be in it in the pandemic, see all these bottlenecks. We check people from their cars right to the exam room. And so we know what the challenges are and we iterate from there. So it's been helpful to have them. Uh, they've, they've been with me for, for a long time and they've really added a ton of value to the company. That's awesome. I love how you all, starting with you as a co-founder, uh, integrate so much clinical, not just doctors, but also medical assistants, as you said, into your product development processes. I know we're coming up in time, so uh, I had two last questions. The first is, given that you're a physician, uh, you know we have a, a large audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, some of whom want to be entrepreneurs as well. If you were going back to day one of medical school at Yale, what is advice that you'd hope someone would tell you about the current moment? Yeah, I mean, keep an open eye and have patience. It is a longer journey from medical school and residency to you know, being a fully fledged doctor that compared to other f professions. So you may see like your colleagues from college going right in and, you know, making bigger bucks while you're slaving away at night on call. Um, but it's that journey that you will see incredible inefficiencies and opportunities and in the system that only you are uniquely suited to solve. So remember what these opportunities and inefficiencies are. Put yourself in your customer's shoes and solve them. And that's really what makes the world a better place is physician leaders and them solving them. That's great advice and something I can relate to having started my medical school journey at Hopkins and then left for uh, seven years now to, to start osmosis. Um, well, I tell my mom eventually I'll go back as well. So my last question is, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience, whether you're wearing your dermatologist hat or your modernizing medicine hat? Yeah, I think we're, we're excited to really meet the moment. Uh, we know that there's a lot of challenges right now for all for all physicians, you know, whether it's treating patients in this pandemic to, you know, adopting new technology and new ways like telemedicine. But America is extremely resourceful. And I truly believe that, you know, the entrepreneurs, the physicians, the public health experts, we're going to come together, we're going to figure it out, we're going to get through it, and we'll come out even stronger. So I, I believe in us and, and I'm excited for the better solutions to come and we'll, we'll all get through it together. 
inspiring words to end on. So with that, uh, Dr. Schrilling, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and more importantly for your work treating patients and building such an uh, impactful platform for physicians. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. Thank you for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.